Welcome to CII Radio. In this episode, we're talking to Charles Manchester. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the role of MGAs in the market. And we're joined by Charles Manchester, CEO of Manchester Underwriting and Chair of the Managing General Agents Association. Managing General Agents, or MGAs, have been very much in the spotlight in recent years, from the reported prolific rate of expansion of the MGA market to the pressure on MGAs in the potential hardening market. Here we'll discuss the dynamics of the MGA market, how they fit into brokers, insurers, and most importantly, customers' worlds, how best to do business with them, and which direction the market could be heading in. To find out more about this podcast and for useful links, go to thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcast. Here's our conversation with Charles. Hello, Charles, and welcome to CII Radio. If we could start in quite a general sense, uh, what exactly is an MGA? Well, that is a question that flummoxed quite a few at the very beginning of the uh, the Managing General Agents Association, right. is defining exactly what an MGA is. Now, um, we sort of landed on a, a definition that uh, an MGA is, is an intermediary, an underwriting intermediary that owes its principal fiduciary duty to the insurers and not to the customers. That's it. And that absolutely differentiates an MGA from a broker whose principal fiduciary duty is to the buyer of the insurance, the customer. I see. And um, and how many uh, MGAs are there um, uh, currently and, and how much business do they write? In the UK, um, firstly, the MGAA, uh, the Managing General Agents Association, has just under 140 uh, MGA members. My guess, nobody knows exactly because there is no pigeonhole in, in, in FCA regulation for, for MGAs, but my guess is that there is something in the order of 200, maybe 250 in the UK. Okay. Uh, there's quite a few internationally, most of them in the English-speaking countries. There's a lot in the USA. There's quite a few in Canada, Australia, uh, and there's an increasing number in, uh, in in Europe as well. Okay, and so what's brought this about um, in recent years? Why is there such a demand for MGAs in, in the current market? Well, MGAs have existed certainly ever since I've been in insurance, and, okay. um, and that's far longer than I care to remember. <laughs> Um, they, they've been in a part of the market, but they've particularly um, burgeoned in number in, in the last number of years. And the, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I think one obvious reason is that an MGA can be um, an entrepreneur's way to starting their own business. Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, um, someone who wanted to start an underwriting business might have started a small Lloyd syndicate and then seen, seen it grow, such as Stephen Catlin, for example. Okay. Um, nowadays, the barriers to entry uh, for starting a small um, underwriting operation with its own balance sheet for underwriting are quite high. If you want to start an insurance company, don't even think of it with less than 100 million and quite probably more. Right. And it's not that very different in Lloyd's. And of course, with, with the, um, the trials and tribulations of Lloyd's profitability in recent years, they're not really supporting a number of new syndicates unless they particularly bring something to the Lloyd's market. And so quite simply, if you want to start an underwriting MGA as an entrepreneur, probably the, the easiest way to do it is to start an, uh, an MGA. The other thing is that I think in recent years, quite a few people have found themselves falling out of insurance companies, either following M&A, where you get much bigger operations that people no longer fit in, or through redundancy. And right, okay. um, if it's difficult to get a job, start your own business. And um, some of those actually get quite successful. 
Um, some of them fall by the wayside because it's not always the right reason to start a new business. And, and also, it's you know, there's a wide spectrum of MGAs as well. They, they can be anything from a marketing operation um, that, that has a particularly a particular in, for example, with the Widget Manufacturers Association or right. whatever, and, the, and they they have lots of contacts in the widget manufacturing industry, and, and there's consequently a, sp- a specialty in that area, through to full-service virtual insurers that, that um, handle pricing, actuarial, claims handling, um, and everything. Um, and then there's a whole spectrum in between, and so it depends where you add value in the in the, in the value chain, really. I mean, how similar are MJs? to brokers um couldn't brokers just go direct to the insurer in in the role that the mga kind of plays that's that's a very interesting question and it's something that some insurers and surprisingly some really quite significant figures in the insurance industry sometimes say and, and the answer is generally not i mean if you want to be in the food chain in any business you have to in the long run add value Absolutely, um, yeah. And if you're not adding value, then then someone will eat your lunch. <laughs> um, and and if an if an MGA is adding value, then simply pitching up at the insurer's door, a broker isn't going to get um, what the MGA can offer because mm. you know generally speaking, MGA offers underwriting value, um, and they they have some sort of special uh, expertise. And if the insurer is happy to pay for that because they don't have it. Um, or because the, um, the the MGA is particularly successful at a, a line of business or, or whatever, then um, then the broker's not going to get that deal off the insurer. Right, I see. Obviously, you're um, you're chair of the MGA Association, um, and you, you. So I'm entirely unbiased. <laughs> of course, um, but you obviously you deal with you you come into contact with a, um, a lot of MGAs. I mean, how mm. in your opinion, how do you determine a good MGA? What does kind of good MGA practice look like? Well, principally, they need to add value. And right. and I keep saying that, um, but you know, historically, some MGAs have started off just because they need to start a business, and they get their some mate at Lloyd's to give them backing or whatever, or right. an insurer, and, um, and and they're not necessarily adding value. If if they're adding value, then then you can generally tell pretty quickly. And and what a, if I were a broker dealing with an MGA, and I've been a broker dealing with an MGA, yeah. I, I would first and foremost ask them for evidence of their underwriting authority and then say, you know, that evidence should say that the insurer will back everything that MGA does and will honour all the claims. And if the MGA, which is, as I said, they won't have a large balance sheet because it doesn't need to, um, if anything happens to the MGA, then the insurer will, will honour all its obligations. And, um, and and that's the first thing that I would do. The second thing is you've got to talk to the people and find out what actually they do do. What, what are they yeah. good at? Um, where can they add value for your customers and and they come in all shapes and sizes you know, right. they're, they're not necessarily large some of them are really relatively small but they've got a particular niche expertise others are really very large you know you even get them writing um, treaty reinsurance these days oh wow so and th- as you say those smaller ones perhaps with niche expertise they can become very important to to um yeah and and because they run generally they got short decision making chains then brokers will get very often, the frontline underwriters will have 20 or 30 years experience and will really know what they're talking about and be able to give a proper service, which you know, not all insurers do these days. Right. Okay. I mean, in modern insurance, um, we obviously we have the rise of uh, insuretech um, across the insurance profession. Is is insuretech something that MGAs are involved with? Has it, has it affected their role or, or uh, evolved their role in, in any way? That's a great question. Um, it, there are two types of insuretech. There's, there's the enablers, if you like, that, that are developing uh, technology that 
insurers, MGAs or brokers or whatever can use and do their job better and more effectively and at lower cost. Um, the other type of insurtech is, of course, the disruptors who, who, for the same reason that entrepreneurs, underwriting entrepreneurs, tend to structure their business as an MGA these days initially. InsureTech, they started off saying they wanted to be insurers, but soon realized that there's this little minor thing that we have in insurance called regulation. Um, And it takes quite a lot of resource, uh, particularly in the UK and in major Western countries like the States, to satisfy all of the requirements of the regulators. And it's not just human resource. It's, it's a lot of money. And um, most insurtech businesses don't raise money just to put it on a balance sheet to put it at risk. Of course, yeah. Um, and so a lot of those, almost all of them, are constituted as MGAs. Now, because they're very clever people um, and they're technology-focused, very often they don't even realize they are MGAs. Right. Um, but they are. Okay. And, and we have some of them in our membership at the MGAA. And, of course... MGAs are evolving. We're all evolving. Insurers, brokers, and and MGAs are evolving along the technology sort of um, uh, line. And MGAs will, because they move more quickly, uh, they may not have the resources of insurers, but they can move more quickly. And it's amazing what a modest technology budget can do to, to differentiate you from other businesses. Mm. Could you um, tell us a little bit about the, the Lloyd's Decile 10 project um, and how that's affecting MGAs? Perhaps starting with what that project is, is for anyone that wouldn't have heard well, of it. Well, it's, it's a little bit bigger than just Decile 10, but Lloyd's has had a number of years of losing money. Right. Frankly, you know, the, the aggregate underwriting result or, or re- return on capital for Lloyd syndicates has been negative mm. for, for some while now. And last year, um, the performance director at Lloyd's, led by John Hancock, took the view that enough was enough and they had to move towards profitability, which is not an unreasonable thing to attempt to do. Right. Yes, yeah. um, and, and that involved... As Lloyd's is, if you like, almost a quasi-regulator, it involved restricting the syndicates that are writing particular lines of business that have historically been particularly unprofitable. They also, I mean, the, the, the lines of business involved are, are fairly well known. They're things like marine cargo and um, international professional, non-US professional indemnity and, and things like that. But they also asked every syndicate to review its its decile 10 it's 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 bottom 10 percent of business that produces you know the 10 percent of business that produces the worst result for the syndicate and come up with a remediation plan to be agreed by the the lloyd's performance directorate that would might involve exiting the line of business it might involve changing things or whatever um, or reducing the exposure to it and this is particularly important for MGAs. Of course, it's important for customers and brokers too. But MGAs live on, you know, they need regulated insurance paper in order to issue policies to their customers. Right. And if they lose that paper, then they're out of business. And so some MGAs in the more challenged areas have found it very difficult as Lloyd's has pulled back uh, some Lloyd syndicates have, have been closed down. Some have exited lines of business. And as that has happened, uh, that affects MGAs in that particular area. So it's more than ever necessary for an MGA to demonstrate that it does add value um, and that it, it has a purpose to its existence. And, and that 
generally for an MGA is to make an underwriting profit. So kind of in a general sense, kind of looking to the future um, of MGAs, um, how do you see that role evolving? Um, how do you see that, the, that kind of their presence in the market perhaps growing or um, how do you see that? Well, MGAs, whilst there are lots of new ones being created all the time, they they generally, there are some that last a long time, but they generally have a limited life cycle because they get acquired um, or they go out of business. Mm. And like brokers, most brokers don't last for 100 years. Right. Yeah. Most, most independent brokers will last for a while and then they'll be acquired or they'll go out of business. And it's much the same with MGAs. And so as new ones are being created, very often others are, are, are disappearing. And the obvious buyers these days, there are lots of buyers of MGAs. You know, they are they include brokers, but they include um, private equity and, and fund managers and things. And, of course, insurers themselves, because if an insurer wants to add top line, a way of doing it is to buy profitable business that is part of an MGA's account. And so, so the numbers have been increasing, but overall, over a period of years, I'd be surprised if we ever end up with a thousand MGAs, right, but we right. might end up with three or four hundred. <laughs> um, and so that's one thing. The, the, the other thing I think that will particularly change with MGAs is that I have a sort of a catchphrase that we're all MGAs this, these days, and yeah. we're talking about insurers because if you'd looked at the value chain of insurance twenty or thirty years ago, you'd have had at one end the customer, obviously, that wants to transfer risk. At the other end, you'd have the um, the insurer or the reinsurer with a, that has a balance sheet to accept that risk and charge for it. But these days, insurers, we see them more as custodians of other people's capital. And so they're, they're in the middle rather than at the end of the chain, because now at the other end of the chain to the customer is capital. And that capital can come in many forms. The, and so an insurer is as much an MGA as the MGA is. They're an underwriting operation that handles claims, mm. that handles pricing, that pays claims, that, that accepts premiums and should make an underwriting profit and maybe an investment profit. And that's actually MGAs can do that too. Yeah. And so I think what, what is going to start happening, and it's already started, is that the MGAs will get closer to the capital. And, and I think that there will probably be regulatory changes to accommodate that sort of thing and also to um, accommodate the changes that the disruption of insurtech will bring to us as well. And I think MGAs will be at the centre of that. Insurers will be too. Mm. But insurers are big beasts and turning the oil tank around and, and turning a, a, a massive international insurer into an entrepreneurial uh, animal again can be quite a difficult challenge. Well, thank you for joining us today, um, Charles. It's certainly an interesting subject and um, thank you for coming in and, and, and talking to us. It's my pleasure. For today. Um, if anyone did want to find out a little bit more about um, MGAs or indeed the Managing General Agents Association, is there kind of anywhere you could direct them to? Or? Well, there's the MGAA website, just Google MGAA and uh, and you'll find us and feel free to contact us. Fantastic. Okay. Um, Charles Manchester, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio. To find out more or subscribe, visit the journal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts or find us on Twitter at CII Group. Until next time, thank you for joining us and goodbye.